0: Thank you guys all for coming today i'm very happy to have you here for the dc5 curriculum we're still in kind of the pulmonary respiratory unit and this is a topic very near and dear to my heart so i'm very excited to hear it um, so we have dr raj shanti who's going to be talking today um, he's an assistant professor at georgetown and he's the apd for the georgetown pulmonary critical care medicine program today's topic as you can see is on acute respiratory distress syndrome um, so uh, dr shanti uh, without further ado i'll go ahead and let you take it away uh, perfect. Yeah, thank you. Um there's a handful of questions actually throughout sprinkled throughout. So if you could use uh, on your phone, if you could go to that website, pccm.participal.com, or uh, snap a shot of that QR code, I'll give you guys a minute to do that. Um and uh No guarantee this works. I'm gonna give it a shot. I hope it does because I spent a hundred bucks on this thing. Um, but we'll see. All right, again, that, that is pccm.participole.com. Here's a question. So what is the auction goal here? Um uh, mechanically ventilated patient with ARDS is on 70% and 12 of PEEP. There is the ABG, the oxygen of 57, the PaO2, saturation of 91%. Um, what do you do? Do you increase the FiO2 or no change? For those of you who are worried about the PEEP, here's a PEEP titration table. Increasing the PEEP uh, over descends the patient, so don't worry about the PEEP. And if that's not enough, and Vinayak and Dr. Bert Lee conferred with Gattinoni, and they do not want to do a PEEP change. So just focusing on the oxygen for a second. Do you go up or down? I'll give you guys a minute. Or not down, sorry, up or no change. All right, the the majority of you advocated for no change. Um, For most of these questions, there's no real right answer. Um, There is something in the chat. It's not probably something. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, so, you know, the original ARDSNET, you know, the ARDSNET protocol advocates for an oxygen, a PO2 goal of 55 to 80. Um, there is actually very little empiric backing for that goal, but it is reasonable. It's a compromise between what's sort of medically achievable and acceptable. So, over these values, the oxygen saturation is relatively preserved and their oxygen content. Um, on the flip side, it is kind of conservative overall, and that is largely in an effort to limit oxygen toxicity. Oxygen toxicity is, um, there is disproportionate fear about it versus the amount of data supporting its presence. Um, and what I learned is that basically there are two different ways to think about it. First is elevated PaO2. In certain circumstances, probably elevated PaO2 is harmful, and that is an acute brain injury after cardiac arrest or stroke, probably through a reperfusion mechanism. Um, But elevated FiO2, absent elevated PO2, which is like the situation that we encounter in ARDS, um, there's very little evidence, in fact, really none, no hard data showing that that is specifically harmful. And I think moving beyond the idea of um, is there oxygen toxicity or not is a more pertinent question that the critical care community is focused on more recently, which is, um, what is the specific oxygen goal? Um, so the Loco 2 trial is an investigator-initiated trial out of France uh, with a very simple clinical question: mechanically ventilated patients with ARDS were randomized one to one to a goal that resembles the old ARDSnet to a goal that resembles more physiologic normal. They found a remarkable mortality benefit in this higher oxygen target group, um, with you know 90-day mortality of 44 versus 30. Several caveats. One is there's only 200 patients, and actually they had intended enrolling 800 um, but stopped early. But, you know, they did stop early because there was a signal towards harm in the conservative group. Um, and, you know, there's very few people out here um, so that the, you know, even though this is statistically significant, I think the faith in the external generalizability of this conclusion is kind of low. And this data is in, isola- is in isolation. It's not been sort of replicated, at least to this point. A couple others um, – ICU rocks is about 900 mechanically ventilated ICU patients, but a mixed population randomized to normal goal versus conservative. And conservative meaning the oxygen was actively down titrated once they reached 97. Um, but a majority of patients were actually post-op or neuro, and there was no difference in outcomes. Um, the hot ICU trials, 3,000 and randomized to a, a PAO2 goal of 60 to 90. They actually did this for up to 90 days while the patients remained inpatient. So, so it was actually a remarkable achievement. They, they um, uh, did this by getting ABGs up to four times a day and in between following the oxygen saturation. But all of these patients were not mechanically ventilated. It was just sort of a mixed ICU population, including individuals who were, you know, just anyone on oxygen. Um, only 13% had ARDS. And there was no difference in outcome. So I think to summarize all this, while these trials are very large, the number of people with our very specific, you know, patient population included is very, is very low. So, you know, even though the ICU Rocks includes only mechanically ventilated people, very few actually had respiratory issues. Ultimately, as well, um, the, the um, discrepancy between the groups, that is the liberal and conservative groups in these trials was low. You know, the PaO2 difference of 10 is like a saturation difference of 1% or 2%. So it's hard to imagine that that would really result in meaningful outcome differences. The LOCO2 trial, on the other hand, was laser-focused on our population of interest. It was ill people, and they actually did achieve quite a discrepancy between the arms of 100 versus 70. It is, of course, very, very small, as unblinded, as all of them were. Um, And there was more proning and the liberal arm, that's the high option arm, which had the mortality benefit. And we know proning is specifically associated with uh, mortality benefit. Um, and that could be because it was harder to get to that auction goal of 100. So the clinicians felt that they needed to prone more. So I think overall, this doesn't, you know, it doesn't overrule – of course, it certainly does not overrule the, the original ARDS net oxygen target. Um, um, but I think from all of these, we can see that higher levels of oxygen were not specifically associated with harm. Um, one of these trials that focuses on ARDS suggests benefit, and therefore, I am I still think this range is acceptable, but I'm looking at the upper end of that range and even higher very favorably. Next question, should I paralyze? Okay. 65-year-old person, prior stroke, wheelchair-bound, mechanically ventilated for aspiration. Same vent settings, 70% 12 of PEEP, ABG 731, 55/57 on 150 of fentanyl, 3 of said, quite well sedated. Here's some ventilator waveforms. I, I, I don't want to focus on this really at all, except to just suggest that there's perhaps some cycling asynchrony. Um, so, do you paralyze this person or not? A mixed bag of answers, and I think that's appropriate. You know, m- most of the questions I'm asking you uh, don't don't actually have a right answer um, here. Um, so, you know, the the use of paralysis is in contradiction to w- the modern emphasis on otherwise limiting sedation in critically ill patients, but. Um, in severe ARDS, you know, patients' respiratory effort can be detrimental by disallowing PEEP to recruit atelectatic lung, especially if there's expiratory effort, and can nullify lung protective ventilation if there's cycling as- asynchrony. It can increase oxygen demand and CO2 production, and it can make assessments for readiness of ventilator weaning challenging. Um, so this piece of evidence from many years ago now, um, which was the first at the time therapeutic that would had a had a benefit in ARDS. Um, showed, you know, in moderate to severe ARDS, the use of cisatracurium upfront for 48 hours resulted in this 90-day mortality benefit, which emerged after about three weeks, which was odd, uh, but nonetheless there was a significant mortality benefit. And the Rose trial in 2019, a very similar protocol, in fact the same inclusion criteria for patients and the same cisatracurium protocol, resulted in no mortality benefit. So what gives? How to reconcile the two? For one, the original one was a third of the patients of the latter. So the um external validity of this is immediately um higher um because there are many more people in addition in the control arms of both trials um Uh, the, the sedation practices have varied and, you know, from the early 2000s when this trial was enrolled to more modern practices where, um, the control arm received heavy sedation and in the Rose trial received light. These patients were managed with the ARDSNET protocol, like very strictly, whereas these were managed with per clinician discretion with an emphasis on the use of higher PEEP and, the mortality benefit in the original uh, paralysis trial emerged after 20 days, which I showed you earlier. That was always odd, um, and I think we used a bunch of hand-waving sort of explanations like um, you know, accumulated biotrauma and all this stuff. but it was really hard to explain. I mean It's hard to explain how you give a drug for 48 hours upfront, and then the mortality benefit only emerges after three weeks. Um, and as it turns out, I mean, these groups were not well matched. I mean, they were relatively well matched, but the the, the cisatracurium group had a lower P to F ratio, so perhaps were more ill, um, and perhaps you know, therefore stood to benefit from the cisatracurium. Um, Another, you know, a caveat about, uh, about the more recent look at this is that, you know, that of the screened individuals, many were already paralyzed. That is, the clinicians did not elect to enroll patients because they felt paralysis was already ne- was absolutely necessary, and there was a relatively low rate of proning. So I think overall. Um, you know, the pendulum has swung on um, paralysis from the use of salvage therapy and refractory hypoxemia to somewhat routine use early to now somewhere in between. Um, it is not a one-size-fits-all approach, and I think the decision is based on refractory gas exchange abnormality and the amount of patient ventilator to Um, So I'm going to give you a couple scenarios. Let's say you you initiate mechanical ventilation on a a patient with ARDS at this, you know, moderate sedative total um, and decide to paralyze. So then after paralyzing, you know, this is the sedatives that they've been on for for two days. Let's say you'd like to avoid paralytics. There's a variety of reasons to do so. One is there's baseline neuromuscular disease, and you want to avoid, like, accruing sort of, you know, subjecting them to the possibility of long-term weakness. Or, um, you know, recently there's data suggesting that it's not necessarily uh, beneficial. So you decide to avoid paralytics, but even though your patient is well sedated in terms of like a RAS or Ramsey scale, they have a refractory dysynchrony or um, they still have substantial dysynchrony resulting in up titration of their sedatives so that they're at this place 48 hours later. What's worse? You know, I mean, I get that the, and this scenario is common, you know, I get that, you know, we would like to avoid the use of paralysis because of the fear about neuromuscular weakness. And um, however, you know, this individual now has accrued a substantial amount of opiate and benzodiazepine. It's hard for me to really reconcile that this was a better strategy here. Um, let's say you're indecisive, that is to say that you would like to avoid using paralytics, but would consider doing so if needed. So you start off here, and then six hours later, because of you know refractory gas exchange abnormality or dyssynchrony, you're here. And then you decide, you know what, I really do need to paralyze. Well, this patient, in my view, is mismanaged completely, because in, in, in the use of paralysis in, uh, for dyssynchrony, um, the purpose of the sedatives is purely to achieve deep sedation. That is, as measured by your RAS or Ramsey scale, the sedative is for the patient to be deeply sedated, not to eliminate all breathing effort. That is the purpose of the paralytic. Um, So therefore, if it's really not an emergency to start the paralytic, it might not be a bad idea to take a pause at this step, reassess, and try to cut the sedation, ensure your patient is still deeply sedated before Initiating your paralysis because we know the total burden of sedative um, is associated with longer and prolonged mechanical ventilation of poor outcomes. So, how to dose the thing? Um, it's you know dosing a paralytic is not something we routinely think about actually, but um, you know in the two clinical trials I referenced, um, they give a bolus dose of succinylcholine cyst- followed by a fixed dose in all individuals irrespective of their size. Most in- institutions, however, um, actually. Use this peripheral nerve stimulator. Um, the way the thing works is that it delivers an electrical stimulus to a peripheral nerve, after which the muscle twitches. Um, um, and there's less twitching based on the depth of paralysis. So if somebody's completely paralyzed, there's zero twitching, and if you know not at all or under paralyzed. There, there, there are four twitches. So um, we, you know, institutions sort of have different protocols for this, but they like to suggest that if a patient has zero twitches, they're over-paralyzed, three to four is under, and one to two is correct, sort of like Goldilocks's soup. Um, but there actually is a broad disagreement between a clinician assessment of paralysis level and a train of four measurement. Uh, for one, th- for one, that there is poor inter-rater reliability of the train of four, uh, edema, sweating, all of these sort of contribute to inaccuracies of the train of four. And you've probably seen if you do it, a nurse does it or another nurse does it, um, you get vastly different values. And that leads to like different, different values of the cesatricarium. In most instances, in this one retrospective look, found that the clinician believed that the patient was well paralyzed with a disagreement as you know by the train of four who which you know categorize the patient as being over or, or under paralyzed and actually these discrepancies did not lead in this one look to any impact on p to f or driving pressure i still think it's somewhat debatable whether neuromuscular blockade actually independently leads to long-term weakness but it's certainly prudent to use as low a dose as possible um and here's an rct um, that actually, to specifically, you know, asks this question, which is, um, should you dose your paralytic on the basis of the peripheral nerve stimulation or the train of four, just based on your clinical assessment? And they find that if you use the train four, this is cisatracurium plus train four, the amount of cisatracurium you're going to use is more, um, and if you just do it based on your clinical assessment, it's less. And this is, was not associated with any uh, physiologic or outcome change in this group of people. So it really doesn't make sense to use the train of four. I mean, you know, the, relation, the, the reason that you're paralyzing is because someone has a refractory gas exchange abnormality, or they um, or, or they have dysynchrony, and both of those are observable phenomena. So you should titrate your paralytic to those observable phenomena. There is this phenomenon actually as well of increasing um, acetylcholine receptor expression as the length of paralysis increases. So there's a creep in the cis dose the longer somebody is paralyzed for. Um, So, you know, of course, these are patients who um, you're not necessarily going to do sedation. I mean, you're absolutely not going to do sedation holidays and stuff for. It's not unreasonable actually to walk in if your plan is to paralyze them for the rest of that day to cut the paralytic completely and then retitrate to sort of the minimum dose that gives you your desired effect. Um, And uh, I would not rely on the train of war. Okay, moving on. What is the airway pressure goal? Um, So airway pressure is a trade off between adequate oxygenation and, um, you know, limiting uh, ventilator induced lung injury. And the ARDSnet protocol suggests limiting plateau pressure uh, by decreasing tidal volume. But, you know, we now know um, and this is one of several looks at this that, that demonstrates that mortality related to plateau pressure doesn't stop at 30. That is that it's very linear, like as plateau pressure increases beyond, above and beyond 30, mortality is linearly related to that specific uh, value. So the driving pressure is the difference between the plateau and the PEEP, um, the, the total PEEP. Usually in ARDS, the set PEEP and total PEEP are the same. Um, compliance of the lung, as you guys know, is volume divided by pressure or the tidal volume divided by the driving pressure. I think you guys all know that static compliance is the tidal volume divided by the driving pressure. The importance of driving pressure in ARDS has been known for decades or a couple, you know, 20 years or so, but it was really brought to the forefront by this New England Journal of Medicine paper in 2015. This was a really complex paper Um, that despite its complexity actually led to a conclusion or leads to a conclusion that's relatively straightforward and in some way very contradictory to one of the pillars of our belief system. That is that lung protective ventilation means you should be setting low tidal volume. So so I'm not trying to immerse you in the complexity, um, but I do want to just introduce what they did. This is a meta-analysis of 3,500 patients spanning nine ARDS trials. So those ARDS trials um, were, you know, I think five about high versus low tidal volume and four about high versus low PEEP. Um, and they had granular patient-level data for everyone in there, including, you know, demographics past, and severity of illness and then ventilator parameters. And they sort of did a – they did a survival analysis to identify the independent risk factors for mortality. And what they found was age, of course, risk of death, meaning like the Apache or SOFA score, lower pH, lower P to F, all of this makes sense, right, of course, and then driving pressure, meaning that the higher the driving pressure, the higher the risk of death. Um, and notably, tidal volume, uh, and particularly tidal volume and P, are not independent predictors of mortality in this analysis of spanning 3,500 patients over non-trials. They are when, you know, they're in, in uh Independently, they are predictors of death. However, in considering driving pressure as well, their prediction of death sort of is lost. Um, What the the model two and three are kind of just uh, what on this chart are actually really just saying what model one does in a different way. That is that if you look at these independent predictors of mortality and then try to add tidal volume to it, that doesn't add any value in the prediction of mortalities. basically said another way um, that when you consider driving pressure, tidal volume and PEEP have no independent impact on mortality um, in, in, you know, in this prediction tool. So in in a sense, you know, that may be somewhat obvious, like that it's simply just reflective of the baseline severity of illness. Like people with poor lung compliance have higher airway pressures, higher driving pressure, and do worse which is obviously true so is it just a risk predictor or is it a parameter we're targeting they attempt they attempted to answer that question by going back to the original trials um, from which they derived this conclusion and starting with the low versus high tidal volume they found that the survival in the low tidal volume group was directly proportional to how much the driving pressure went down by definition lower tidal volumes lowers the driving pressure but the extent to which it did Uh, linearly predicted survival similarly in the peep trials higher peep was only noted and you know only seen actually in those who had a lower driving pressure and directly proportional to those in who the higher peep led to a lower driving pressure there are several limitations you know this is a lot of like analytic chicanery, and it's ultimately just sort of a retrospective study, um, but, you know, the data is not in isolation, and, you know, notably an SCCM meta-analysis supports this, and there's sort of, like, a pretty strong biologic plausibility um, here. So then, if you wanted to operationalize this, what to do? You know, the dri- there is no driving pressure knob on the ventilator, so how to, like, take this finding, if you believe it, and, and, and put it into practice. So, um, So, you know, driving pressure is ultimately a dependent variable. The independent variables are tidal volume and PEEP, and conventional low tidal volume ventilation or lung protective ventilation lowers driving pressure. So, in that sense, I'm sympathetic with the authors of this editorial who suggest, like, you know, if you're really charting driving pressure, doesn't that just mean you're doing very low tidal volume? I think they're probably right, right? so, you know, a specific recommendation is I can't really give you one, um, but, you know, one thing I would say is that um, this whole driving pressure discussion, one thing that's emerged is that we as clinicians, which you all do, should move away from templated vent manipulation changes and recognize that ARDS is highly heterogeneous, and a patient's ARDS is different than the next patient's ARDS, and their ARDS changes day by day. For driving pressure to be useful to you, you do have to measure it. However, and you know, on the on the ventilator, it's plateau over you know minus PEEP. That's how you're getting it on the ventilator. But that also equals tidal volume divided by compliance, or tidal volume scaled to compliance. Um, so you know, it can be a complementary tool in tidal volume and PEEP titration. Therefore, you have to measure it and um, recognizing that it will change as the patient's disease does, and it is not unreasonable to aim for even lower tidal lines um, if tolerated and, and tolerated means a lot of things. It means um, that gas exchange is adequate, that dyssynchrony is not, you know, doesn't become refractory, that sedatives don't go through the roof, you know, so, it, it, you know, truly tolerated in several different realms. And I think it's safe to say, you know, PEEP titration um, has several sort of considerations, including hemodynamics, oxygenation, airway pressure. But I think it's safe to say that driving pressure is more important than plateau um, when considering PEEP titration. Um, In this model, um, you know, so this is uh, a, you know, the compliance curve of the lung uh, and chest wall, ignoring hysteresis, with the transpulmonary pressure here and the volume here. This is health. Health has a good compliance or very low. That is very small changes in pressure lead to very large changes in volume. And the ARDS lung, you know, it requires higher changes in pressures and a stiff edematous lung to achieve those same changes in volume. So um, in this model, you know, the purpose of the PEEP is to deliver the desired tidal volume over the lowest driving pressure. A phase two sort of like proof of concept study from one ICU actually randomized MICU patients with ARDS to just a regular protocol versus the driving pressure targeted type of ventilation. And what they did there was essentially target a driving pressure of 10 by sequentially lowering the tidal volume to as low as 4, actually. Um, and the PEEP was the same in both arms, which is they, they tried to adhere to that low PEEP arm of the ArtsNet protocol. In the driving pressure group, there was lower tidal volume and lower driving pressure, as you might imagine, because that was the protocol, really. Um, they used ended up with the sort of same amount of PEEP. And, you know, despite a higher respiratory rate, there was a higher PCO2, which, as you might expect, because the minute ventilation is lower, um, but, you know, they, they tolerated that. And notably, the sedation and neuromuscular blockade use was similar, and the pressors were similar. Not allowed to really talk about this because it's not statistically significant, and this is just a proof of concept, but there was numerically fewer, you know, event days in this group versus the ArtsNet group, so probably more to come on that specific issue. Um, should you use inhaled pulmonary vasodilators? So like in, inhaled pulmonary vasodilators have this attractive physiologic rationale, which is that they are delivered from the airway side. So go to vented alveoli, uh, vented, vented alveoli and increase pulmonary capillary blood flow by dilating them and hopefully increase, uh, decrease shunt fraction in that way. Um, so by specifically being delivered to well-ventilated portions of the lung and vasodilating those bl- uh, blood vessels, uh, so, you know, um, augmenting the effect of hypoxic vasoconstriction and selectively uh, perfusing well-ventilated areas of the lung. Okay, so here's a patient, um, our our same patient, he's 65-year-old, prior stroke, wheelchair-bound, aspiration pneumonia, is now paralyzed and prone. 90%, 14 and peep. Here's the ABG. Do you start, inhaled depot, or is there no point? Yeah, I mean, I expected sort of like a mix of of, of answers there. Um, so this is a, a a recent chest meta-analysis about the use of inhaled pulmonary vasodilators. A, a, a couple things. One is, you know, what they found is the use of prostaglandins that is like inhaled EPO or, or actually nitric oxide leads to improvement of P to F on average of about 36. There is no mortality benefit. But notably, like, you know, there are – this is 20 years' worth of studies, and there's only 500 included patients. Um, So this is a really understudied area, you know. So uh, parsing the available data, it it does seem that on aggregate, these drugs are safe. They seem to improve P to F, but there is much less convincing information about vent days. Um, And it's led to this emergence uh, of this trope that every critical care doctor says, which is they improve oxygenation, but not mortality. And, you know, sort of thing. like if everyone says the same thing, you should view it very suspiciously. Um, But, you know, in this case, it's actually probably true. Um, You know, a couple things. One is there is two drugs. One is inhaled nitric oxide and and the second is inhaled epoprostenol. The former is more expensive. They've been compared head to head and one has not been found to be superior to the other. So their thoughts sort of um, similar, and so this is in- inclusive of inhaled nitric oxide and inhaled epoprostenol and most of these study protocols are actually observational, and there's a high degree of heterogeneity, meaning that, like, when you suggest there's an improvement of P to F of 36, what do you mean? When was the ABG that confirms this done relative to the initiation of the drug? What was the drug dosed at? What were the other event settings changed in between? So it, it, it's hard to sort of tease out very you know, specifically how your patient would do based on this information. In fact, a Cochrane review only finds that there's two high-quality enough RCTs about this specific topic and doesn't make, it, make a recommendation for or against their use. Um, I just want to share our COVID ICU experience. COVID is a completely disease, different disease altogether, um, but we zoomed in um, on the change in p to f after the initiation of inhaled ibuprocenol um, in individuals who did not have a change in PEEP or FiO2 in the intervening time. That is to say, they had ABG, EPO, ABG, no change in PEEP or FiO2 in between. So try to zoom in specifically on the use of inhaled ibuprocenol. We found that the change was, you know, the median improvement was about nine or low, but there was a huge variability, including a handful of patients who, you know, actually dropped on unclear reasons, maybe at like decoupled you know, VQ um, matching on some macrophysiologic level. Um, I, I don't know. Um, but you know, this data, even though this is just our one institution in COVID, the data suggesting that there's a wide variability in use is 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 not an isolation. There's several papers that suggest that this phenomenon is possible. So, you know, in 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 clinical trials. For therapeutics, there is this idea that the average treatment effect for a specific drug may be very different than the individual treatment effect. For some drugs, that, that that difference is very narrow, and for some, it's very high. It appears that this one's very high. That is to say, I believe that in all comers, if they were to receive inhaled egloprosanol, there would be some moderate, on average, improvement in oxygenation. But there are specifically people who stand to substantially benefit. And in those people, perhaps you can lower airway pressures, which we know are you know, harmful and, you know, but actually probably more importantly, there are some people who do uh, worse. So um, the fact that this is possible should alert you to like, um, you know, the idea that you should be very specifically checking for its efficacy or lack thereof. A few studies have actually kind of looked at whether or not there are ways to predict whether someone would respond to inhaled hipocrossanol. It's hard to really parse out through this, a unifying theme of a way to approach its use or lack thereof affects some of these. Are exact opposite. Like this study finds elevated PDF or you know higher or better oxygenation predicts re- responsiveness. The opposite here. Um, there is a theory that the specific X-ray pattern actually corresponds to responsiveness to these inhaled pulmonary vasodilators. Like um, if there is low bar pneumonia versus diffuse disease, that is like in low bar pneumonia, may, theoretically there might be a better response because you can you know shunt. Um, you know, blood flow away from that one specific area toward the rest of the lung, which is relatively normal. That was not borne out to be true here, actually. The, the x-ray pattern did not have any relationship to the responsiveness or, that, or, or lack thereof. Um, so with all that in mind, um, my recommendations are that if you use inhaled e you decide to use it isolated from other interventions. You guys know that early in the management of somebody with refractory hypoxemia, they are simultaneously paralyzed, proned, inhaled depot, and there's five inch changes in between. So then you have no idea whether or not the drug work, worked or not. It may be that you need to do that, of course, but if possible, isolate it from other interventions, specifically test for if its efficacy, that is an ABG before and after um, and consider, you know, in the, in the two papers that actually compared the two, there's a handful of people that actually responded to the nitric oxide instead of the inhaled EPO. If you have both of these handy, it's not unreasonable to try the inhaled nitric instead of the EPO um, if there is no responsiveness. You don't need to wean. This is an odd practice. Usually um, weaning of these inhaled pulmonary vasodilators is done when the patient is improving. Uh, the half-life is very, very, very short. That is the effect is immediate. So as soon as, so I, I would suggest you just turn it off and it's still in the room. So if a patient decompensates because you turned off their inhaled EPO, which is pretty unlikely anyway, it's still there and you can turn it right back on. Um, and then essentially remember that the dosing is poorly understood. I mean, the, the, the dosing is completely made up I mean this is a reference suggesting that there is actually a substantial dose responsiveness. So in an individual I find that actually has a specific, that has EPO responsiveness, I'll just go up on the dose. You know, the 15 nanograms per kilogram of ideal body weight is completely made up. Um, So that's enough about EPO, way too much about EPO. Okay, when should I extubate? This is a patient I rounded on four days ago. Um, And there's a lot of data here, so I just put an arrow here to suggest that this is the RISB after a 30-minute trial. Give you guys a few more seconds. Our institution actually uses low-pressure support. Um, for over 30 minutes for, uh, to, do, for our SBTs. Oh five fine. You copped out and said you need more info. Fine. Um, well, okay. So we'll, we'll circle back to that, but, um, so in your institution, there are a set of protocolized readiness criteria that defines whether or not someone automatically gets an SBT. It's not uniformly uniformly agreed upon what those are, but um, it is some reasonable set of like adequate oxygenation, and adequate hemodynamics to proceed with an SBT. It's really important that this is done automatically and protocolized because clinicians consistently underestimate the capacity of their patients to breathe independently. Um, Afterwards, you proceed with an SBT. Even a patient who is improving and doing well on quote-unquote minimum vent settings may fail an SBT, and that's because there's a mismatch between the capacity and the load. This is all relatively obvious, but I like it because, you know, it just highlights that spontaneous breathing can also stress the cardiovascular system. I would also add upper airway injury is a load as well because of the endotracheal tube. Of patients who are mechanically ventilated, you know, 30% die while ventilated. Um, you A handful get trached and a handful are transition to comfort measures. Some have an unplanned extubation. About 50% get a planned extubation attempt. Um, So the ideal weaning readiness test would mimic unassisted spontaneous breathing. And that test obviously doesn't exist. Yang and Tobin were from University of Houston, um, UT Houston. And in 1991, they they came up with what we now know as the RISB or the F over VT. This is certainly worth a read if you haven't read it, um, if anything, just for the historical perspective, but it's also an interesting methodology and pretty remarkable that um they did this in an observational fashion with just a hundred patients in one center and we're still using it today. Like I can't think, you know, I mean, it's, it's there's not many things in medicine that we were doing in 1991 that we're still doing today. So it's pretty remarkable that they, they, they identified this, and what they found, um, which was, uh, you know, measuring the F over VT with a T piece trial for two minutes, um, had, you know, with this specific cutoff, that over 105 indicated that there was a very high risk of failure, and then less there was a moderate to high chance of success. That is, the negative predictive value is better than the positive, and that's borne out to be true. Um, you know the RISB um, is affected by a number of things, including the patient size, the underlying disease, the tube, um, and the tube size. And the protocols vary for SBTs um, from T piece to CPAP to low level of pressure support, and all of those will impact F over VT. But all of that notwithstanding, there has not been another weaning parameter that's been introduced that it, that has surpassed the RISB because even if slightly more accurate, there are some papers that demonstrate a slightly more accurate set of indices for weaning, but they add significantly to the complexity, therefore have not been taken up at, at, at a larger scale. Um, so, you know, these papers are, are very highly cited in this specific area, and this, this one finds, and these investigators actually did amazingly measured cough strength in terms of, like, flow and secrete, measured secretion volume and find that, you know, including the RISB, these additional features predicted extubation failure. Um, And if you look at this very closely, actually, poor mental status had a high degree of collinearity with cough and secretions. Um, And other subsequent looks at this have found that, like, if somebody has, you know, adequate secretion volume or low secretion volume and a good cough, that lack of alertness in and of itself should not, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily predict predict extubation failure. This chess paper actually um, from from a handful of years ago actually describes that the specific RISB value or F over BT value is related to weaning success. Um, That is to say that although the cutoff that we use is 105, I guess somewhat obviously or intuitively as you get lower and lower and lower, uh, the likelihood of reintubation is lower. So on first glance, you might think, well, instead of 105, or why don't we use 50 or 25 or even lower? For one, um, most people throughout actually are successfully extubated. And then the this, this second is if you if you orient your extubation practice toward just minimizing failed plant extubations, you may actually increase or prolong mechanical ventilations in, in individuals who may otherwise tend to do well. That actually brings up this concept of aggressive versus conservative vent liberation. Aggressive is you know, to do it with people with marginal SVDs, poor alertness at night, which is often limited by staffing considerations, you know, that specific clinical question about like aggressive versus conservative patterns was, you know, addressed in the study at, at a UVA from our own, spearheaded by our own Chief Benayak, actually, in which it was over a several-year period um, in which he remarkably looked at 1,500 extubations, it's the largest study of excavations that exists as far as I'm aware, and what it, what it, what he did was, what they did was, um, it was in the MICU population, um, and they split it up by months. And in each of the months, they just defined the percentage of failed planned excavations Usually, like, um, you know, if you look at observational registries throughout the country in the MICU, the failed planned excavation rate is something between, like, 10 and 20 percent. Um, so high, medium, and low tertiles. And this encompassed, you know, you know, hundreds of patients within each group. Um, and they were demographically matched in terms of severity of illness and stuff like that so it just happened to be that some months perhaps the physician was very aggressive versus less so as you might imagine those you know if there's a very high failed extubation rate the outcomes are really bad you know failing a planned extubation of course is associated with really high mortality the question then you know being whether if that's related to or contributing to the poor prognosis there's some data suggesting the latter that is that there is a crude morbidity during the unsupported ventilatory period, um, whether it's aspiration pneumonia, nuanced onset AFib, worsening shock, and the reintubation itself. And, and patients who are reintubated have a very high rate of VAP and prolonged mechanical ventilation are likely to die. You know. um, and so, so that matches what we know about failed planned extubation. But what's really interesting is in this middle tertile, there's a trend versus all of them towards the lowest vent-free days. So while you know we think about extubation at the level of the individual, which is that we success is that they were successfully extubated, it sort of raises it to the level of the unit and a practice pattern, which is which is merging the idea of the harm of failed extubation with the harm of prolonged mechanical ventilation, suggesting that there is probably the sweet spot with. Where some aggressiveness about ventilator weaning and, and and extubating marginal patients has an overall benefit. RISB or you know, RISB is a single measurement while breathing is a dynamic phenomenon. So in this study, actually, that measure, measured the RISB throughout an SBT, they did a two-hour SBT and finds that people who were successfully extubated, the RISB either stayed the same or dropped, and people who failed, it increased. Um, so, um, it, it seems like, and this has been replicated in different disease models, you know, like COPD, heart failure, um, that the change in the RISB is actually more helpful than a single measurement of the RISB itself. So, therefore, the sum total of all that is to say that the SBT is not binary. Like, we do want the residents to report that if somebody failed – or pass their SBT, but you should not consider it that way. You should carefully look at the weaning parameters over the duration of the trial and, and carefully consider whether or not the pay, you know, the RISV, um, you know, stay the same or improved, or actually worsened during the trial. And if they worsened, you should alert yourself to the possibility that that is a higher risk extubation and have a comfort with a certain proportion of failed extubations. Um, I'm actually not going to discuss the physiology here, um, of, of um, heart-lung mechanical ventilation interactions. Of, cu- of course, you know, that's for an entirely different talk, but I think you guys know that mechanical, you know, positive pressure, whether delivered for a non-invasive or um, the, me- the ventilator reduces, uh, increases intrathoracic pressure and therefore decreases pulmonary blood. Um, so as you provide, uh, m- this is wedge pressure, so as you provide more support, their, the wedge pressure is lower. And as you pro- provide progressively less support, the wedge pressure is higher, pulmonary blood is higher. And, you know, positive pressure also reduces LV afterload. So in people with with um, LV systolic dysfunction, it's not unreasonable to modify your um, SBT to consider using very minimal pressure support um, and for perhaps a longer period of time. Recognizing that the ventilator is truthfully mechanical support for the heart. So it's like removing a balloon pump. Um, and I'd sort of be remiss to talk about extubation without mentioning upper airway injury. Um, In this study of about 150 patients who were extubated in a a MICU setting for respiratory failure, um, they actually physically, you know, know, visualized the larynx and, and, and found a huge rate of laryngeal edema including, you know, and many people who were not reintubated. And it wasn't just edema, sorry, was these laryngeal lesions. It was also ulcerations, granulations, and, you know, vocal cord, uh, mobility issues, glottis, overall global glottis dysfunction. And it's not specifically related to the presence or absence of stridor either, I think we think about um, post extubation, laryngeal edema, strider, reintubation as sort of this like singular event, but it's probably better to think about it as a spectrum of abnormality in which laryngeal injury related to the endotracheal tube is very common and it's just a respiratory load. Um, that, you know, that someone has to face when they're having unassisted breathing after a period of supported breathing. Um, one RCT actually, you know, remarkably with 700 patients, actually finds that the use, the routine use of methylprednisolone around the time of extubation resulted in fewer reintubations. You probably don't need to give it to everybody. Um, and, you know, so the, the biomarker for the presence of uh, a laryngeal edema or an upper airway injury is the cuff leak. The issue with the cuff leak is that um, it's just very inaccurate. You know, someone may not have a cuff leak and still have – and not have laryngeal edema, and the opposite is true as well. So it's probably more helpful to just use the cuff leak in people who are high risk for developing laryngeal lesions and – so don't routinely do it, and we found that, you know, upper airway injury is more common in women, traumatic or reintubation, prolonged mechanical ventilation, and, and enlarged ET tubes. And in these individuals, if, if there is an absent cuff leak, that is, there is no discrepancy between the delivered and exhaled tidal volumes when deflating the cuff, it's not unreasonable to give steroids. And, and the protocol they used was 20 milligrams of methylprednisolone every four hours for 12 hours, starting a few hours before extubation. Okay, this is the last uh, couple things I'm going to talk about um, before we end here. Um, Last question, Um, what type of oxygen should I excavate to? So this same patient who was mechanically ventilated for aspiration pneumonia for eight days, uh, during his SBT, his RISB goes from 60 to 70. He is one liter positive. His alertness is poor, but his cough and gag are good, so you decide that you're going to go and excavate him. What type of oxygen should you use? Okay, will get going here and see what people say. Uh, at, interestingly, the majority of you, although we have a lot of attrition now, we're down to eight people, <laughs> say high-flow nasal cannula. That's, that's really not unreasonable. Actually, I agree with you in that case. In this person, I would actually extubate the high-flow. Um, so, you know, the role of non-invasive, um, the use of non-invasive in that, you know, post-extubation is, like, relatively well-established. It started with this single-center study. Um, in Spain that actually just honed in on these high-risk people. They defined high risk by a certain severity of illness on the day of extubation, intubated for cardiac disease or elderly, and they randomized them to, you know, non-invasive ex- after extubation or just regular nasal cannula and found that respiratory distress and, you know, re-intubation and mortality were numerically lower, although not statistically significant. And actually honing in on the data further, those with COPD or chronic hypercarbia actually benefited more which has been subsequently proven in a a different RCT, um, but, you know, also it was not helpful in all comers in a, in a, in a different look. That is, extubating to everyone's non-invasive is not necessarily helpful, but certain high-risk groups, particularly those with COPD or hypercarbia. I, I, I don't mean to talk about this in, in great detail, but, you know, in, in 2015, the FLORALI trial introduced the idea of high-flow nasal cannula for hypoxemic respiratory failure, and it led to the widespread use of it and also interest in its use post-extubation. In um, a couple of trials a, a few years apart, and JAMA, one that was focused on low-risk patients who were extubated. Low-risk meaning that their severity of illness score was low, they um, you know they were under 65 and didn't have severe cardiac or pulmonary disease, and found that the use of high-flow nasal cannula even in these low-risk individuals led to fewer reintubations. Another look at it focused specifically on um, high-risk patients and found that the you know um, inter using non-invasive with high flow. Um, you know, one after the other, I guess, after in a 48-hour period reduced um, uh reintubation. So if you look at all of this, it's, it's like we're using non-invasive for high-risk patients, and then we're using high-flow nasal cannula for low-risk patients. So we are, are we really doing this for everybody? That's certainly not our practice. It sort of, and guidelines actually more recently actually sort of widely suggested the use, particularly of high-flow nasal cannula after intubation. Um, so this comes out of Vanderbilt. Um which, you know, it seems to be the place that answers all of these practical critical care questions um, now. Um, and, you know, what they did was this pragmatic trial in which their ICU was two wings. Um, it was divided in half, and in half the ICU, um, patients were excavated to intensive oxygen or usual care. The intensive oxygen was either non-invasive per the standard indications, which is either COPD or they, are, they were hypercapnic during the SBT. Or high flow. So most people were high flow, and 20% met that criteria. And in the per clinician group, uh, 15% got got um, you know some form of post extubation support that was not nasal cannula, and most of them were non invasive for these same reasons. Um, and it, you know it's pragmatic because every three months they kind of flipped which half of the ICU was getting which intervention. Did that for two year period, and. Lo and behold, there's no difference in reintubation, no difference in mortality, and it didn't matter if the patient was high risk. So how to reconcile this with the prior data? For one, um, it is twice as large as all the other studies combined. Um, And, you know, patients were cared for in a way that really mimics clinical practice. Um, That is to say that actually in the older looks of post-extubation failure, including the two JAMA papers I referenced earlier, um patients were re-intubated based on a protocol which is sort of not how we practice you know there's no specific protocol to intubate or not intubate it's a combination of things and largely clinical gestalt um and you know in and and another thing i'll mention is that the usual care group got non invasive here versus like getting either nothing or um you know just just nasal cannula alone because of our awareness that it's specifically helpful in these groups so i think that the summary here is that root Teen extubation to high-flow nasal cannula is not, or some form of post-extubation support is not helpful, but in select cases it may be. If you look very, very carefully at their information, um, I would not necessarily generalize this to prolonged mechanical ventilation. That is, that the intensive arm receiving high-flow nasal cannula actually benefited in people who were into, benefited the subgroup of individuals who were intubated for at least a week, Therefore, you know, non-invasive for COPD, hypercapnia, heart failure, and consider for marginal SBT or prolonged mechanical ventilation, which is why I agree with you guys on the answer to that question I just posed. And that is it. If anyone has any questions.